Welcome to Do We Like Movies. I'm your host, Angel. And I'm your other host, Javi, who detectives demons or some shit. <laughs> and uh, this week, we're finally going to wrap up, I guess, the original Exorcist trilogy. Uh, we're doing Exorcist 3. It's the series none of y'all asked for, but God, anyway. <laughs> um, I've actually been wanting to do this movie on the podcast for like a while now. and It's cool because I could have gone the entire run of our show and never done this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is a movie from 1990. Uh, it is, despite the fact that it's called Exorcist 3, this movie essentially retcons Exorcist 2 out of existence, like immediately. If you remember in the early days of the show when we did Exorcist 2, which, you know, by far maybe the worst movie we've ever done in this podcast ever. It's up there. It's definitely in the top five. <laughs> it's in the hall of shame. <laughs> um, but that movie basically blew up the franchise to such a point that Warner Brothers actually ended up selling the rights to the Exorcist franchise. Uh, they were purchased by Morgan Creek Productions, and Morgan Creek made this movie in association with Fox instead of with Warner Brothers. So if a movie was so bad that it forced Warner Brothers to offload its property, then you know how bad that means it was. And uh, movie studios will take a lot of chances on crap, especially around the year 1990. <laughs> but uh, the fact that, or, you know, at least pre-90s, but it's like the fact that a studio was like, we do not want our fingerprints over any part of this train wreck goes to show you how fucking awful uh, Exorcist 2 was. Well, I think the other thing, too, is because this movie came out in 1990, this was the year after 1989, which Javi, which I've kind of talked to Javi about, like behind the scenes, as really the year where horror sequels all jumped the shark and kind of like the stock dropped so hard that there really wasn't much. <laughs> it basically depreciated every horror franchise. The fact that Halloween five Friday the 13th eight and uh, nightmare on Elm street five all like completely bombed in the box office. And also just like amongst fans and critics alike. If horror movies in 1989 can be described in meme form, it would probably be not stonks. <laughs> yeah for real. <laughs> so it was time to sell and uh you know what was interesting though is that we do have some people returning from uh the original uh from the original exorcist right because the characters like said, mm -hmm. yeah we we have a lot of the characters like this is actually based on um william peter blatty's uh second like his actual sequel to the exorcist right the legion. the legion yeah which he ended up writing because exorcist 2 pissed him off so much <laughs> like 1985 he writes this book essentially kind of like all right well if anybody's gonna fuck this up and then it's gonna be me and no one else so he creates kind of a you know spiritual sequel to this movie um he actually is the director of this film. So he wrote the screenplay for Exorcist 1. Neither he nor, uh, what's it called? Bill, uh, who is the guy who did it? Uh, I can't Ooh, remember the, rec the director fan. anymore. I was going to say Bill Kinderman. But... Friedkin. He, he, neither he nor William Friedkin uh, had anything to do with part two. <laughs> so uh, part three 
it was just Blatty on his own, uh, essentially directing the first movie he'd ever directed. So now you know who to hail, you know, throw your rotten tomatoes. At. Well, you know what's funny about that too, despite the well, there's two things. One, William Peter Blatty is now dead, right? He's no longer with us. You know um, who's grave to throw rotten tomatoes. At. But the other one too is that this movie actually gets completely taken away from him uh, during production, uh, to the point where, and I'm like, when I'm talking about like, I'm talking about like Justice League level a movie has been taken away from you and it's been done so originally he wanted this movie to be called legion right and Mm -hmm. legion is essentially just kind of like a soft sequel to the exorcist it's got characters from the original movie but it's a bit more it's it's kind of an original story that just kind of like it pays enough tribute to it to where you remember pieces of the original movie but it's, it's almost its own thing but the problem was morgan creek productions the studio basically there was two things that they wanted one they wanted the film to be called exorcist three because they wanted to cash in on the fact that it was a sequel to that movie so they did not let it be called legion and the second they insisted that an exorcism take place in that movie so there is a character in this movie by the name of father morning that you'll notice like does not interact with any other characters in this movie and the reason why is because he was basically inserted in post-production. <laughs> so ridiculous because Father Morning literally has nothing to do. He has no interactions with any of the main characters. <laughs> has nothing to do with the story. He feels totally shoehorned in. And it's like, now that I know that, it totally makes sense. And it came with a pretty hefty high price tag, right? Yes, like, I mean, his scenes cost like <laughs> mil or some shit like that. Well, yeah, because if you notice, they go like they go balls out with this exorcist with like flames everywhere and snakes and like all sorts of weird like imagery that takes place, which is still like a remember must. How, remember how subtle the exorcism was <laughs> in the first exorcist? Yeah, and this one, they have like <laughs> they have people nailed to crosses coming out of hell. I really think it was because Hellraiser had come out like a few years before that and like everything wanted to be Hellraiser a bit. They <laughs> Clive Barkered it up. Yeah, I think so because I think Halloween 6 does that and there's other sequels that kind of will try to ape that aesthetic because Hellraiser did come and kind of change the game a little bit uh, in the late sequel run of slasher movies. But Anyway, there's something else about this movie that I figured it'd be good to mention before we actually get into the (laughs) storyline. This movie, uh, and this is a bit of a true crime aspect to it, this movie actually is the favorite of famed serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. (laughs) And in fact, he he, when he was like killing other men, right? would actually bring them over to his home and have them watch Exorcist 3 before like killing them and eating. that is that is not something that we should really be associated <laughs> I'm just saying like fuck this movie has a lot going for against it now like <laughs> well it's funny too because like I think you and I are I think it's pretty clear we're gonna land on on kind of opposite sides of the fence here and the fact that I actually like this movie I'm gonna be like Hmm. 
What does that say about me? <laughs> and you not only like, yeah, I want you to know you're in the same club as Jeffrey Dahmer. Like it's, it's you and Jeffrey Dahmer at the meetings for the Exorcist <laughs> Three fan club. Just don't eat anything he brings. <laughs> oh my God, no! Why am I picturing like myself hanging out? <laughs> In a church basement Julia. with Jeffrey Dahmer <laughs> drinking coffee and you eating cookies. Eat some chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like you know, you try to run away, and a police officer just gives him back to you, or gives you back to him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's get back on track here. Um, so hey, this you're the one that's best friends with Dahmer. I didn't know the, <laughs> that movie was about you. So this movie stars uh, George C. Scott, who is playing uh, Lieutenant Kinderman, uh, William Kinderman, who was the police lieutenant from the original Exorcist movie, right? The one who comes in to talk to Chris McNeil, um, and he's the one who discovers Damien's body, like, you know, at the bottom of the steps uh, in D.C. at the end of the movie. So this movie retcons stuff because... (laughs) I mean, I don't want to get super... It, but like it retcons things to the point where it takes away value from things in the first movie <laughs> and it was like i get it it makes sense though now that you explain that this is a lot of studio involvement no uh, but, but you know what i think i think this with studio involvement or not i think the one thing that is a blatty like retcon that you can't like explain away is the fact that in the original exorcist like kinderman is suspicious of Karis. Like, if you remember, like, he interviews him, uh, trying to find out if he knows anything about those occult deaths of, um, of the director, Brick Dennings, right? Like, he, he is suspicious of him. Mm-hmm. And in this movie, they retcon it to the fact that Kinderman was his best friend. <laughs> it was, that was weird. That was really fucking weird to me, because I was like, wait, didn't you hate this guy? I don't think he hated him, but he most definitely wasn't best friends with him. It makes sense that he becomes best friends with Father Dyer, because if you watch the director's cut to The Exorcist, which would actually come out in 99, so it came out nine years after this movie and would make more sense 11 years later. But what's it called? Um, at the at the end of that movie, uh, it ended with Father Dyer and uh, Kinderman talking about movies and like going to a movie together after you know the mcneil family had left uh, the uh, house at, at the end of the priest. movie <laughs> good priest. yeah he's super dead you want to go watch a wonderful life fuck yeah buddy <laughs> fucking freeze frame as they high five <laughs> yeah and it kind of does end like that and i think it was one of the biggest points of contention between blatty and friedkin on the original exorcist is that Friedkin wanted the ending to just be more subtle and you know you just see Father Dyer like look up the window and then walk down the street as the exorcist theme plays mm-hmm. whereas the Blatty ending you know had him look at the stairs walk down the street and then get like you know Kinderman is the one who kind of like hails him over and they start talking about like going to see like pictures and stuff like that so and then then he hits him with the here's looking at you kid (laughs) basically um i don't know i like the original ending better and i'm glad that you know in recent years like even when we did the review last year like the cut that's available now the director's cut it it has restored that original ending 
So mm-hmm. this is just something that you're, it, it's, it's not impossible. You're more left to infer it as opposed to it being kind of like spelled out for you. Mm-hmm. That Father Dyer and Kinderman are best friends. <laughs> they are best friends. Um, and it feels like Karis was a link between them. But in this, they basically retcon it to he was their best friend. <laughs> and the three of them would all hang out together. <laughs> they were the holy trinity of friendship. <laughs> Uh, so it so you know the movie opens with the Georgetown campus uh, and really just like the area around Georgetown, like the neighborhood from the original movie. And let me just say, <laughs> I know it's creepy, and I know it looks like somewhere where why would anyone want to hang out in creepy libraries, like in the middle of the night in this town? But is it weird that I wish I could live in Georgetown? <laughs> yes, very much so. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I like the architecture of this stuff. It just feels so old (laughs) and quaint to me. It's where, like, Georgetown is one of those places where, like, Lovecraftian horror stories take place. (laughs) Yeah, I, I can't, I can't help it. I really think it's nice, and I actually started looking at. I even started looking at like what the listing prices are for real estate are over there. And it's actually not too different from how expensive things are in the Bay Area anyway. <laughs> and maybe cost of living is going to be cheaper out there. It's I, No, actually, D.C. Yeah. is one of the most expensive places in the country. But it's still actually like not as expensive as San Francisco. So, <laughs> Oh, you know, There's there that. you go. <laughs> Was it, um, it, I just want to say, isn't it great that we're getting a return to Georgetown? It's not a fucking back lot, like back studio lot. <laughs> Yes, and that's the thing where like it the the locations is what brings me back to the original movie more than anything. I don't need the story to be derivative of that original Exorcist story, but if something kind of just brings back the feeling of it, then that is totally fine with me. I like the mood in this movie, and I can't explain it. The first time I watched it, I didn't like it. I didn't like this movie much at all, and it really is one of those movies that kind of grew on me after a while. Um. And I'm now I'm such a fan of it that actually uh, a few years ago, uh, Shout Factory did a uh, they released a two disc Blu-ray set that included uh, a director's cut of William Peter Blatty that was essentially assembled using work print footage. So it's obviously he had already passed away, um, but they took kind of like all the work print footage that was able to be restored and they've assembled a close approximation to what the director wanted and it's a relatively different movie it's not drastic because i think there's still stuff that blatty there's probably footage that blatty wanted in it that just doesn't exist anymore so it was more of just like an approximation as opposed to a true director's cut um but there are there are differences between them and i'll and i'll get into them as we get later into the movie for the most part for the most part in the beginning it's just it's the arrangement of the scenes and the, the only beginning. people that the only people that bought that cut were you and the ghost of Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> <laughs> no, the the good people at Shout Factory would only have put together that DVD, that Blu-ray set if other people besides me wanted it. <laughs> and the ghost of Jeffrey Dahmer, don't forget that. <laughs> it's really important that you remember your friends with Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> Well, this one actually, this movie actually joins another Shout Factory DVD, like Blu-ray set that I got that was Halloween 2 that Shout Factory also released. And these two kind of sit together as among my favorite horror sequels of all time. 
Wait, which one you said in Halloween 2? Yeah, Halloween 2 Halloween. and Exorcist 2. And Exorcist 3. Oh, no, oh. you already said Exorcist 2. That's canon. <laughs> Face melts off. <laughs> a la fucking Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> All right, so the movie kicks off with uh, a murder, you know. A murder uh, most foul. Yeah, and th- what is similar about this in the original Exorcist is that as opposed to seeing what actually happened in this murder, uh, it's explained to you <laughs> by the police officers and, uh, well, from Kinderman to Father Dyer, uh, who he meets, you know, they get together, they watch It's a Wonderful Life, and I, I do like the rapport that they have with each other. They do seem like friends. <laughs> you know, it seems like it's funny to see the priest kind of be the one that's light and, and not so self-serious and then have the, poli- the police officers like the one that just, God, George C. Scott looks like he's going to have a heart attack like every second of this movie. He's like, yeah, dude, he looks like, he looks like he's always breaking down into the meat sweats and he always <laughs> looks like he's just ready to, to just... Looking for a reason to pull his gun on people. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Like, he absolutely looks like he's over this shit. So the fact that he's still a lieutenant 15 years after this movie, it's like, God, you should probably decide to retire pretty soon. It's like the <laughs> cop that Dirty Harry grew up to become. <laughs> yeah, so they get together and they watch It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I have to admit, because obviously I have the brain of an old person. I also really like that movie, <laughs> despite the fact that I know it's like it's not as great as you know people kind of make it out to be. I love It's a Wonderful Life, so they're already winning me over by the fact that this is the movie that they get together to watch every year. You were like, <laughs> first you had my attention. <laughs> <laughs> I forget the line. Fuck it. <laughs> yeah, but they get together to watch it as a way to kind of cheer each other up. Um, because this is the anniversary of the death of Damien Karras. What um, a weird way to celebrate your friend, best friend's death anniversary. Well, I, I, what does kind of make sense about this, though, is uh, in the original makes- movie, in the original movie, despite the fact that Karras and Kinderman are not friends, <laughs> like they imply <laughs> here, they do actually talk about movies together mm-hmm. in that one scene that they see, <laughs> because Kinderman literally talks about movies to everyone he sees in that original one. But uh, yeah, it's it, they after they have their, you know, their movie date, <laughs> they go out to dinner at whatever restaurant Larry King was at. <laughs> and uh, that's where Kinderman explains to Dyer, like the murder of a kid named Thomas Kintry, mm-hmm. who is a, you know, who he was part of a police boys club. And they make it a point to say that he's black. And the reason why is because in the murder, like, he is decapitated and his the part where his head's supposed to be was replaced by the head of a statue of Christ done up in blackface. Um, That's right. I forgot and, about that detail. Yeah. And in his actual head, they shoved an ingot in both of his eyes, which is kind of like a, like, it's not like a nail, but it's just like a bar. It's like a like, big iron yeah, like, like, rod. Yeah. yeah. And they shoved one in each of his eyes. Um, it's just it's really gruesome and I think there's a just such a cruelty to it you know and he was decapitated and 
crucified on a pair of rowing oars, which is why in the, mm-hmm. be- in the very beginning of the movie, you see like all those guys holding that canoe running down the sidewalk as Father Dyer is walking by, which is, I guess, a bit of a foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Um, but and you know yeah, what's it's interesting? Mm-hmm. Like very much like the, the or Exorcist 1, none of the most gruesome stuff ever really takes place on screen. It's all relayed to us through exposition. But it's never done necessarily in a way that it's like an expo dump, right? Like your traditional kind of like, oh, oh my God, another expo dump. Like it's it's done in a way where it's like, yeah, they're presenting information to someone who genuinely doesn't know the information. Mm-hmm. And then what's worse about it is that I guess this is kind of where the whole horror thing comes in is it leaves your mind to really kind of visualize what happened. And that's yeah. where it's kind of more terrifying it's like the same way when the director was killed we didn't get to see it but it was like just hearing about it and imagining how it could have gone down was what made it more terrifying right it, it's more than anything that you couldn't have imagined that would have happened and yeah, definitely. and i think it's it's also like it's i think it's also interesting to kind of focus on the fact that uh you know that i mean obviously they're having a bit of a discussion about <laughs> about you know uh life and death and all that kind of stuff but it just it drops an extra like it it makes kinderman at least a little bit more sympathetic because apparent even though it makes absolutely no sense that he would actually interact this boy like if he was part of a police boys club he's a lieutenant like i just i don't see very many lieutenants like hanging out with like kids and boys clubs but I don't know. <laughs> it, I really don't know enough about like the structure of the police department <laughs> to know what a lieutenant does. But uh, yeah, it's definitely like you know, it, it, it's there's just this what I has that like the original Exorcist had is just this over this overwhelming like sense of dread that just like floats over every scene that you get. Oh yeah, I 100% agree. It definitely feels like anyone could get it at any time. <laughs> yeah, and. Um, it, once once they uh once they have their discussion is i think i believe that's when we're looking at the scene where the woman comes to do confession mm-hmm. to the other priest <laughs> and um it's i i think this is the first really good creepy scene of the movie um it's definitely an old lady's voice but it sounds like you know the queen after she's like morphed into the old hag in snow white mm-hmm. <laughs> And the voice, like, where she... And this is a kind of, like... The killer in this movie that they're chasing after is essentially, like, a Zodiac killer, like, you know, like, representation, like a fictionalized Zodiac killer, right? His name was the Gemini Killer, and during his confession, you know, as the old woman, he talks about the fact that he slit the... the He slit... The neck right of of, yeah. of a girl near candlestick park <laughs> which you know obviously tells you that it was in san francisco mm-hmm. so um yeah it's there's, a there's a zodiac reference <laughs> well yeah because i guess the zodiac inspired the gemini killer and um yeah like that that was really it it was just that uh oh no scorpio sorry i thought gemini was at i thought it, the the um I thought the reference was even pulling from uh, Dirty Harry, how in Dirty Harry, uh, he's also like hunting after a Zodiac stand-in. And I thought it was also a Gemini, but no, it's, it's called 
Scorpio in that movie. Yeah, no, it's it's just it's like in this world, like this is that killer that would like that would taunt the newspapers and stuff like that. But and he, yeah, and he leaves like very cryptic messages. He has very specific ways of spelling, and I think Kinderman talks to his staff about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's very there's a lot of similarities between um the gemini killings from 15 years ago and uh and the and the, the i guess the thing that really gets him and it's something we find out later is that kinderman and the detectives when they originally were um when they were originally get uh feeding information to the press they were f- uh purposely giving false information so that way they can root out who the crazies were and who actually had information around uh around gemini right so it's interesting that at this point in the film when the when the woman goes and confesses to these killings she knows the modus operandi like the true modus operandi of the gemini killer um you know to the horror of this of this priest who doesn't even know how to react and it's like and then we find out that um you know he gets murdered horribly in front in a church like not full of people but with like witnesses like she, like the apparently if i remember correctly the 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 woman found a way to like open the uh the screen between the partition between her and the priest and yeah. managed to inject him with a drug that paralyzed him yes. but somehow still it paraly- like you need a certain amount i, I don't know i'm not a doctor but yeah. apparently the the drug used uh too much will kill too little will have no effect so they need the exact precise amount so that it paralyzes them, but they can still feel pain. Yeah, and like this terrifying idea that this the, this priest can no longer defend himself, and then was later just murdered by this elderly woman. After they gather a lot of information uh, from, or they gather as much evidence as they can from the uh, crime scene, uh, you see Kinderman. He has a lot of like disdain for. for his other officers and his detectives oh my god (laughs) he just feels like everyone's a dumb dildo and that they don't do their job nearly as well as they should he's like a really like not anywhere near as funny version of like the that uh police captain that ice cube plays in 21 jump street (laughs) (laughs) i know it's, it's hella true though he just like anytime someone is like uh is like hey you know they're like hey lieutenant do i have to get these prints and he goes what the fuck do you think you're supposed to be doing yes get the goddamn prints he looks like he hates literally everyone even his friends <laughs> i know like he just looks so angry he's an old curmudgeon the entire time <laughs> when when he goes to see later in the movie there's like a scene where he goes to see father dyer in the hospital and he has a scream we're fine <laughs> like, or like oh, it's not in the me. file like he freaks the <laughs> fuck out he's one of those dudes that he reminds me of my dad when i was growing up and how much anger issues he had <laughs> and how you were afraid to tell your dad anything because you knew any little thing would set him off <laughs> oh my god yep that was my that was my pops he was lieutenant kinderman yeah kinderman fucking hates everybody around him <laughs> uh but anyway Besides the fact that he hates everyone, he actually does kind of like Father Dyer, and it's he likes told Father Dyer, and he also likes that he. There's one other detective that he seems to not hate. I don't know what it was. I think it was um, oh Sergeant Mel Atkins. 
that was the only other guy that I see him consistently be around and not absolutely hate his guts. Is Atkins the black de- uh, yes. detective? Yeah. yeah, that was the black detective. Yeah, because the other one he hates. The other two guys he hates. Yeah, <laughs> he hates the, the white guys. <laughs> they were like they were the cops that gave the little Filipino boy back to fucking Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay, because those guys were like, "Do I have to get prints?" And Cameron's like, "If you don't fucking go in there and get those prints, I'm gonna beat your ass." <laughs> he literally calls him racist. <laughs> I, <laughs> I forgot about that when he's going one of their like test results yeah. for like the detective exam and he's like yeah they ask him what he has to do with rabies or you know what are rabies and he says they're jewish priests <laughs> yeah no the other one too that's kind of funny and we're getting like way off topic here but i don't care <laughs> the other gag in here is uh early in the movie when father dyer is having uh breakfast with another priest um at, at the university <laughs> he like asked him he asked dyer like why he offended uh their biggest benefactor <laughs> basically said what did you say to him <laughs> dyer says uh i told him jesus loves you everyone else thinks you're an asshole <laughs> yeah, that's right <laughs> so, isn't it funny that dyer is pretty much like mel brooks yeah he absolutely feels he even kind of looks like mel brooks to me a little bit <laughs> he even does the fucking space balls reference when he tells the nurse to let the schwartz be with you yeah I'm like what the fuck i'm like why is this in this movie <laughs> it's really funny too because if you see the dire character in the original movie he's he's like much well he's actually kind of like this too he's the guy who's playing the piano at Chris McNeil's party while they're all singing the show tunes. <laughs> I can only think of a uh, scary movie too now. Shut your ass. All right, let's get back to this movie now. Okay. <laughs> if we must. <laughs> I mean, I guess we have to. But, but yeah, yeah. So Kinderman's the one that makes the connections between uh, the current the current killings and the similarities to the Gemini killings. So he asked for for people to kind of reopen the the gemini case check out the files and look for details to which no one wants to no one believes him because obviously gemini was i believe he was killed right they they put him to the they uh sentenced him to death oh yeah he was he was he literally died in the electric chair yes so it's like no one thinks there can be any possible connection because he's already dead but Kinderman, you know, being the top angry cop he is, refuses to believe that there isn't some connection between these killings. Yeah. Well, and the shocking part about it, too, is that they, they end up discovering that despite the fact that both of these killings fit the bill of a true Gemini killing, both of the prints that were discovered are from completely different people. That's right. So, I forgot about that point. So it makes it impossible the fact that the Gemini killer is just someone else who's because originally, like Kinderman, obviously thinks it's a copycat killing. Mm-hmm. Like that is his first, you know, place that his head goes, and that makes the most sense. But if it's two different people committing the crimes, then how could you possibly know that? Um, and I believe it's through the fingerprints from the second one that they pull that they. They they match the fingerprints to a elderly woman that is living in a psychiatric ward, right? Yes. And she's that psychiatric one... ward looks a lot like the place where they put Damien's mom in the first movie. <laughs> yeah, it it was a little creepy. But did you notice who the doctor was? Uh, the doctor of the psychiatric ward. 
I did. Yes. Dr. Dr. Temple, played by Mr. Scott Wilson, who fans might remember from The Walking Dead. That's right, baby. He was in The Walking Dead. Yeah, no, my God. He looks, well, this was like 20 years before The Walking Dead. So he definitely looked younger. Even then, when he was in The Walking Dead, he was maybe like, what, fucking. That even that was like 10 years ago, yeah. so this is like 30 years from then, yeah. Like, this is crazy, dude. But he goes to see this woman, and she's very obviously not in her right mind. And it's very unlikely that this woman would even have the strength to carry out some of the killings that have been taken, like that have been taken on here. <clears throat> um, so they're kind of at a standstill here, right? Um, he ends up going to visit Father Dyer in this hospital because they never really tell you but Dyer basically just has to go to the hospital for some sort of checkup or something um that's where they get the may the Schwartz be with you you know gag and all that stuff and and I think the the thing that is kind of a bummer is that this really is going to be the last scene of these two kind of having a rapport together and Mm -hmm. it's you know you just however you may feel about this movie I don't know I I do like the relationship that they both share together um and you definitely feel like something is missing once you know this next thing happens which is the really bizarre dream sequence (laughs) that kinderman has the dream sequence is fucking david lynchian in in, like in in symbolism and imagery and just weird shit it's just it has to be the weirdest thing I've seen in a, a long time. <laughs> it definitely isn't the, like, it feels like an actual dream, uh, like Rosemary's Baby was. Like, to me, watching that movie again, like, I discovered just how kind of, ex- how, kind of how perfect that idea of dreaming is because it felt so much like actual dreaming. This is just weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it is, and it is like something out of and and you and I like texted about this while we were watching this movie, but it felt like something out of Twin Peaks, right? It um, was very <laughs> Twin Peaks. Like man. you feel like you stepped into the Black Lodge. Uh there was cameos in this. Uh, a shit time. <laughs> yeah. There is a cameo from Sam Jackson, except his voice was dubbed over as someone else's voice, so you won't recognize anything that he says. And obviously, this was uh, three years before Jurassic Park and four years before Pulp Fiction. So Sam Jackson was in stuff at this time, but people didn't really know who he was until closer to the mid-90s. You get the hunky Adonis that is uh, Fabio. Fabio. (laughs) (laughs) I only recognize because of that hatchet jaw of his (laughs) and his, uh, you know, flowing locks. I was like, oh, geez, dude, what the fuck is he doing in this movie? Yeah. And if you notice, the angel that is sitting next to Father Dyer in this dream is actually Patrick Ewing from the New York Knicks. (laughs) What is Pat Ewing doing in this movie? Was he just like bored one day and found himself on set? Well, it's like it, it, that, and then the Larry King in the diner earlier. Like it, this movie is just filled with like random cameos. So, if nothing else, William Blatty at least knows people. <laughs> it, it's either he knows people or he goes to these like famous locations where famous people are. No one knows what's going on, and when they ask him about it, they're just like, "Hey, do you want to be in a movie?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the big takeaway scenes from this is that kinderman not only sees um 
I was about to say Karis. What, what was his name again? The Father Dyer. Dyer, thank you. Not only does he see Father Dyer, but he sees other victims of Gemini. Well, of copycat Gemini at this point, including um, the boy Thomas Kentry, who in the dream has been has had his decapitated head sewn back onto his body. And there's something about the way he looks that's a little frightening. It's the eyes, right? Like, I mean, it's the eyes. It yeah. looks like it looks like Reagan when she's possessed in Exorcist One to me. <laughs> and I get it. it. Was, I think it the reason why is be and I, and I didn't think about it until I saw the movie this time. But the reason why his eyes look weird is because his eyes were poked out with ingots, right? Like, yeah, that's exactly why. <laughs> and it was a lot of uh, there was a lot of people like that. I I think it was supposed to be like more of uh, Gemini's original murders. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're supposed to be in that weird psych ward uh, but uh, again by the time he gets to Dyer he also sees that Dyer's head's been sewn back onto his body mm-hmm. um, you know which at this point leads us as the audience members to assume that Dyer is dead yes. and of course when he wakes up I well, believe when there as this dream kind of speeds up and like this big band music plays and while that's happening you see like Father Dyer basically it, it look what it looks like in that brief scene is it looks like he's doing the thing Reagan did where she was like bouncing up and down on the bed in the original movie mm-hmm. but what he's actually doing is the Gemini killer is literally pumping the blood out of his body yeah that was <laughs> and that's crazy. why he's like shaking like that <laughs> I was wondering what that was. And yeah, that's what that imagery is supposed to be. So, you know, we get the sad scene of the movie where uh, Kinderman gets a phone call letting him know that Father Dyer has died. Um, he goes to ID him in the hospital. He finds out that, yes, the correct finger is missing. Uh, the Gemini thing is where it needs to be. And uh, his entire blood supply has been pumped out and put into these tiny medical jars. Which I think there's only something like 10 pints of blood in our body or some shit like that. So it actually, it's interesting. The amount of blood on in that scene is actually kind of what realistically the amount of blood we have in our bodies. It's not like in, it's not like in other movies where we'll just pour out gallons and gallons of blood. And look at you, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, we're looking at you, Evil Dead. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the, then they noticed that on the wall, it's a wonderful life has been written in blood and with the double L's at the end. <clears throat> so this is another Gemini killing. I had such cool attention to detail, like connecting Gemini to Zodiac, because you know how Zodiac had a weird way of writing. It's one of those little things that, especially for Kinderman's character, being able to see the double L's, because at this point, this is pretty much what leads him to make those final connections, mm-hmm. but also kind of what drives him over the edge. <laughs> well, you know, that... it, it's almost like a snake eating eating itself, right? Because there's so much in here, because besides besides just like the story beats that Zodiac and, and Exorcist 3 have in common, like one of the few, like one of the most bizarre Zodiac letters that was ever written and sent to the San Francisco Chronicle was actually the Zodiac killer talking about his experience watching The Exorcist, <laughs> if you remember. <laughs> uh, so if you, if you really want to look at like just a really bizarre short letter, uh, search for Zodiac killer Exorcist because he literally like writes a blurb for the San Francisco Chronicle on, uh, on that movie in the 70s. It's so bizarre. 
Uh, but anyway, so this uh, leads uh, Kinderman to reach out to Dr. Temple and he finds out about a patient that 15 years ago was found kind of like walking around Georgetown completely out of it, having no recollection of who he was, what he'd been through. And then the thing is he, when they, when they lock him up, he become he goes through these stages of going from catatonic to violent to catatonic again. And he's been like that for the past 15 years. He's a John Doe, but He's connected, you know, they found him after the the, the night of the death of uh, Father Karras. So uh, when Kinderman decides he wants to talk to this guy, he goes and he finds, you know, he goes and he, he confronts him and he finds out that the guy he is talking about or that he's talking to is Father Karras or it is the body of Father Karras. And this is where it gets weird because I was trying to figure out whether Karras was alive or not. Uh, Karis, well, they tell you later in the movie that Karis is alive, but this is where we get a, this is where the director's cut and the theatrical cut split apart. And what I mean by that is that this movie, what they did was they actually brought back the actor, Jason Miller, who played uh, Father Damien Karis in The Exorcist. He was pretty well into alcoholism at this point. He actually ends up dying from alcohol, like poisoning or some sort of like liver liver disease directly related to alcohol in 2004. But by this point, like he was pretty, he was in pretty bad shape to the point where he basically had wet brain, which essentially means you're just drinking so much alcohol that like he couldn't even recognize lines. Like lines had to be fed to him to be able to to, to recite what he was supposed to do. But um, the studio essentially said that they wanted to bring him back so that people would recognize him from the original movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but the original idea that Blatty had was he was just going to cast uh, Brad Dourif and have Brad Dourif do all the dialogue and just have you infer maybe it was the Gemini killer. Maybe it was Damien. Like, you know, like like basically like that. It was more, mm. you know, it was just, it was less of a like, it was less supernatural where it was just going back and forth between two different actors (laughs) gotcha gotcha um well because the way i took it it made me feel like well pretty much what i'm watching that scene right so you got kinderman talking to karis and karis um feeding him details that only the gemini killer would know so and then uh, also the gemini killer talking about a master and how the master did him a favor, allowed him to return to earth and how the killings he's committing are just a way to repay the debt to his master. Um, yeah. the master- so basically he's a disciple of Pazuzu who mm-hmm. was the person who possessed Reagan in the first movie. And the connection between this and the exorcist is that he's essentially, he's essentially sicked the Gemini killer as a, as like a dog as to, a revenge yeah to to basically get revenge on people who you know all were involved with expelling him from the child's body in the exorcist jesus christ also i wanted to go back real quick was max von Sydow the only guy to not have his life negatively impacted after the exorcist <laughs> i mean he was the one who had a career i mean ellen burston had a career after it but she did have like 
back problems <laughs> like yeah, well, that have followed thing. her for the rest of her life. But yeah, I think it was Max von Sydow who had, but he was in the movie the least amount of everyone. So, so he was touched the least by the exorcist curse. <laughs> and he was touched the least by like the curse of William Freakin is, was an asshole who was firing guns in the, st- <laughs> in the fucking set. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh my God, I forgot about those stories. But the curse that, that follows Max von Sydow is that he fucking came back to do exorcist too. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's a pretty good trade off. <laughs> I mean, look, it only made uh, James Earl Jones's career even stronger. <laughs> yeah. And both of them are like in movies in this past decade, right? Like, I mean, James Earl Jones came back to play Mufasa again in the live action Lion King. That's right. And Max von Sydow, you know, before he passed away, <laughs> did uh, his little bit part in uh, The Force Awakens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, just saying, I think they're the ones that came out <laughs> smelling like roses out of this whole ordeal. Yeah, I guess you just had to be an exorcist too. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, after this scene, um, Kinderman goes to see, you know, the, the priest who's in charge of the whatever the hell it is. Basically like one of the boss priests <laughs> at Georgetown, the one who was, uh, who Father Dyer was talking to in the beginning. And when, they... <laughs> when, you, when you do like after your 50 uh your 50th baptism you uh, you can qualify to become an underboss be- an underboss <laughs> i can't wait to become a capo priest <laughs> and then the only way you can become a boss priest is by challenging the authority of the boss priest so you have to fight him <laughs> well, oh man give me a religion i make it right <laughs> well the old boss priest you know effectively lost the fight because the old boss priest went back to just being a regular priest. <laughs> so the, the connection, the guy, right? He used to be the old boss priest. <laughs> no, no. So the so this is where this priest can uh, puts and Kinderman put all the connections together. Mm-hmm. That priest who's killed by the old woman in the confessional. That priest used to have the job that the priest who was talking to Kinderman had before. Mm-hmm. Right. So he was the boss priest <laughs> before. <laughs> And uh, just went back to, I guess, being a regular priest who does confessionals after that. But um, obviously, Karis was the one who expelled Reagan, the demon from Reagan. So, you know, he's that's why he's being punished. Um, Father Dyer was friends with Damien. And he's also the one who keeps Damien's medallion, like after uh, after the whatever happens, right? Mm-hmm. Um the, the end of Exorcist and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Kinderman is also part of it because he was the cop <laughs> who was following them around somehow. He was trying to find, you know, the killer of all the people in Exorcist 1. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a nice touch. I was not expecting this. But the reason why Thomas Kintry is murdered is because his mom works at Georgetown University and she was the one who discovered that Reagan was talking backwards on the tapes that Damien Karras was listening to. That's right. That was a really cool touch. That was like, I like the, I like this scene because it really brought everything together. Like I'm going to be completely honest. My biggest gripe with this movie is the fact that it's called the exorcist three, because you could have done so much more without having it connected to that. Like it could have been just an offshoot of that. 
and it would have been i think it would have been at least an it would have been at least an enjoyable movie but because for me at least it has that like direct connection of being like a sequel it was just like it felt like a lot of those details were shoehorned in but it was like during this scene where i was like okay this is actually really good like writing and really good attention to details it didn't feel like everything was so shoehorned in the way it had been before you know leading yeah. up to this <clears throat> and i would argue that i mean well i wouldn't argue this i, I would say it for a fact William Blatty agrees with you. He did not want this movie to be called Exorcist 3. That was a studio decision that was forced upon him. And there's even original trailers of this movie before it came out. And you can see them on YouTube where they actually called it Exorcist 3 Legion. Mm -hmm. But it ends up just becoming Exorcist 3 by the time it's released. (laughs) Um, Like this movie would have been so much better if they didn't have to shoehorn the Exorcist. And while all of this stuff is happening, you know, they, they, this is where they shoehorned like the thing about Father Morning being like one of the people on Georgetown campus. And that's when you get the first scene. And again, you know, his scenes were shoehorned in because literally every scene that he's in something like special effects, supernatural has to happen. Like Mm -hmm. it gets dark outside. Um, A bird dies, a cross falls off the (laughs) the wall and Christ starts bleeding. Like all sorts of weird shit happens. Just weird supernatural shit follows him around. And the other thing is he's alone. He doesn't talk to anybody. People talk about him. Yeah. But I, I guess he's uh, ever since uh, Father. What? Ah, crap. Well, who was the priest that did the um, that did the uh, exorcism? Exorcism. Yeah. Uh, that was the uh, the original priest played by Max von Sydow, right? Yeah. Marin. Who I was thinking. Marin. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So it's like he he pretty much becomes the stand-in for Marin because they don't bring back Max von Zito because Marin's super dead. <laughs> yeah. Well, that <laughs> and, and, and they, as... like, they talk about him, like, doing exorcisms in, like, the Philippines and stuff like that, so he really is. Like he... He's the head exorcist. <laughs> yeah, now he is the exorcist, but we're <laughs> never gonna talk or show him ever. Like, and then the other thing is just to add his i guess more to his legitimacy is they got to make his white his, his hair go white because he went through such a like traumatic uh exorcism out in the philippines which that's another twin peaks thing right like i don't know if you've seen if you've gotten up to season two i think it's season two but there's a point where ray wise's character in twin peaks inexplicably goes in one episode from having like dark hair to having white hair and that's what he has for the rest of the series after that <laughs> and it's never addressed yeah. <laughs> but oh, uh whatever <laughs> well yeah whatever who cares yeah i mean basically this is the part of the movie where it's easy to to, to kind of get lost in it because you know a lot of it is just like conversation between between the demon and kinderman and you know it's not as good as the conversation between the demon and karis in the original exorcist like where like that stuff was just that movie has a power and a potency to it that you can't really match at all like Mm -hmm. the scenes are just there's a ton of gravity to everything that happens um well i think the reason why is because originally karis karis talking to pazuzu was Pazuzu trying to break Karis and try to like poke a hole in his faith. So the entire time is how far can Pazuzu push Karis, right? Mm-hmm. While here, 
it's not necessarily we got to remember here it's 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 gemini talking to kinderman and kinderman so, doesn't feel kinderman does not feel vulnerable the way that karis did in the original no, movie not at all <laughs> he's, he's driven by catching the killer yeah like so he doesn't even he's not even sure he believes in what you know he's starting to kind of put together that this might be Mm-hmm. so he's just like i'm gonna catch the bad guy and that's it like mm-hmm. that's all their their interactions are it's gemini killer being like i'm crazy and i like killing people because the blood feels good <laughs> and then uh kinderman's just gonna be like i'm gonna get you you punk like like that's really what their conversations like devolve into so i'm just like like eh, i have no i have no stakes uh, there's no no i think this is one of those things where it's like they probably wanted it to feel the way silence of the lambs like the novel did and stuff like that it's just it's the procedural thing right like meeting yeah. the killer talking to the killer finding out what the killer did and it's just i feel like there's lots of other movies that have done this way better so mm-hmm. i will agree that, that that's part that's the part of this movie where it feels weaker you know like it's it just it, despite the fact that i think brad duraf does a really good job in this and mm-hmm. in the director's cut, he does an even better job because they don't like they don't modulate his voice or they don't have that thing where he's cutting back and forth between Jason Miller and him. It's yeah. really just him talking the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially what happens is he the Gemini killer kind of like admits. Well, admits what he's done, but then he also starts telling Karis that, you know, like uh, threatening him vaguely. Right talking about how you know you're you're asking for an invitation to the dance and all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. and in the next like the next day that's where you see that one of the other old women in in this place gets ends up getting possessed right mm-hmm. and um and she climbs and like starts <laughs> crawling on the ceiling always terrifying i don't give a shit yeah no that's a frightening part of it and besides that woman who's getting uh who who at that point is getting possessed there's also the other old woman who's gotten possessed and has killed one of the nurses in that asylum like ward um and she is now and she puts on the nurse's outfit and there's like a misdirection here right where where gemini killer talks about little jack horner and it sounds like he's gonna say sat in the corner but he just like passes out instead right and that's mm. where you find out that there's like a little red haired boy that's in there. His name is his last name is Corner with a K. So obviously mm. you think that, you know, the Gemini killer is going to go attack him. Uh, but he walks in and it's like the other bitchy nurse that's in there. That's right. <laughs> the nurse, the nurse who just like screams back at George C. Scott. <laughs> I do think that their <laughs> scenes together are hilarious because all they do is just like scream at each other <laughs> and it's funny because literally everyone else around them is just talking at normal volume but these two are always screaming they're just like they hate each other <laughs> it's not in the file his goddamn nose is broken <laughs> <laughs> his goddamn nose is broken what are you doing this was it you can't treat children like this the poor <laughs> child is like frightened she's screaming in his ear <laughs> and she's like holding him and then he comes in with his gun it's like (laughs) oh my god but this is probably one of the better tension scenes of the movie uh where the other the other old lady is in a cab on her way to visit karis's family i mean uh kinderman's family 
And she's like, ooh, there I go killing again. <laughs> and Kinderman like jumps into one of the police cars and it's like screaming at other people to get out of the way as <laughs> they're driving to this house. He's not even driving. <laughs> and it's funny because like he squirms as if he is the person who's driving or if he's making really sharp turns. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing, George? <laughs> it's funny too, because like recently, like I, I, less than a month ago, I watched, I rewatched uh, the Changeling, which is also another horror movie starring George C. Scott, and he's a lot more subdued in that. And that was like ten years before this. <laughs> he's just a lot like angrier and older <laughs> in this. So they get to uh, Kinderman's house where this old lady is just like sitting <laughs> at the table. And that's where, like, it looks like apparently she's gone back to her old, like, catatonic, like, or semi-catatonic state. And Mm -hmm. not really sure where she is. And then all of a sudden, Brad Dourif's voice comes out of this old woman's mouth. (laughs) And that's when the giant, like, shears that were in the hospital, which there was a pair of shears that went missing and nobody really cared enough. They just ordered a brand new pair of shears. Which is and like my the- favorite part about that is Kinderman even asked what happened to the old shears and someone goes, uh. <laughs> I was like, what kind of fucking hospital is it? Be like, y'all would be mega fired. Like it's, <laughs> it's someone like, like I, I know people who are friends of mine who like work as like equipment people for hospitals. You would be, super duper fired <laughs> for losing equipment like that uh, and it was like to do nothing about it and try to get it back is the worst part but yeah apparently this woman has the shears and in one of the most comical looking saves in movie history <laughs> you see like the shears pretty much float to kinderman's daughter's neck <laughs> and the only per- and the only person that can save her is apparently Kinderman's mother-in-law. Yep. <laughs> and she like dives and saves her granddaughter from getting decapitated. <laughs> but it just looks so fucking comical because it's like superimposed and not actually shown to be there. Yeah. Uh so after that, uh Kinderman and the cops they try to subdue her. She ends up uh, the the woman ends up attacking uh, Kinderman, the police officer, and pretty much bodies them. But then in comes Father Morning. Like, finally, he's going to do something. And oh, just apparently his presence on the, the hospital premises was enough to make uh, Gemini lose control of the woman. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Kinderman goes back to the hospital, and during this time... Um, warning tries to he he has a confrontation with gemini and you're expecting it to be like you know marin facing pazuzu it's like nah (laughs) morning for some reason gets pinned to the ceiling by gemini and then has like half his face ripped (laughs) he is like oh no he is mega murdered and you never hear a word about it ever again (laughs) Like, I don't even think you see a scene of people carrying his body out. <laughs> no one gives a shit about him. And you know why? Because this character literally didn't exist in the original movie. <laughs> it was insane. He gets he gets half his face ripped off and then a bunch of demonic imagery. And I'm just like, so this is where all the, like, a third of the budget went? <laughs> 
<laughs> it really did. Like, I mean, it feels like, it re- like I said, Justice League. It really is like a complete subplot that was added in here. They wanted to change the entire tone of this, like, section of the movie. Um, it, 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 but whatever. Like, I mean, it, it's just one of those bizarre things. The director's cut of this actually cuts to right after the scene of kinderman's family you know he goes and his family's fine and everything's good he goes back to have one more confrontation with the gemini killer and just shoots him <laughs> and just shoots him and that's the end of the movie and it ends and there's right no there. warning in it at all no oh thank god <laughs> uh this one does have a similar kind of ending but it's still a little bit more special effects and that george c scott is like thrown against the wall and, <laughs> and there's some more like it's the back and forth between Jason Miller and um, and what's his name? Chucky. Uh, what's the actor's name again? Brad Dourif. It really yeah, goes yeah, back yeah. and forth between Jason Miller and Brad Dourif a lot more in the theatrical cut. It ends kind of the same in that it ends with like, you know, Damien being like shot ultimately. So, yeah, someone gets shot. Like that's going to ultimately <laughs> be the end of the film. But depending on which cut you watch, there's going to be one that's very... Um, that's very uh hellraisery and yeah. that's the one like the theatrical cut had fucking father karis on a or cross being held by like damned soul yeah the actual the 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 and that's the thing like there's actually a little less supernatural about the director's cut because the director's cut kinderman just says damien forgive me and like shoots him like out of pity <laughs> before yeah, this he even one, like in, sees in this back one, and forth in this one, they're fighting for Karis's soul again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so but, yeah. you know, it's it's kind of a bummer that they have to do that because Karis is. I mean, Karis is one of those characters that's going to be marred by tragedy forever. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, Karis regains his free will away from Gemini and begs uh, Kinderman to kill him, which he only says, "Kill me, kill me." And before he even second finishes the second one, Kinderman just blasts. <laughs> Mm -hmm. fucking unloads like half his revolver into him and then just gives him the dome shot to like the coup de grace (laughs) i think the one thing we didn't talk about which we probably should talk about before we stop talking about this movie (laughs) is um that really really maybe one of my favorite jump scares in horror movies ever which is the scene where uh one of the uh nurses is like walking and checking in on all the uh on all the hospital rooms and the people oh, in yeah, the hospital that one, rooms. That one was pretty good. I'm not going to lie. Like <laughs> I thought it, it took forever to get there, but that is a pretty good payoff. If you're a big old horror fan like us. Yeah, no, it's, it's really good. And I remember even the first time that I saw this movie and I wasn't sure if I even liked it at all. This was the scene that made me want to go back to it again, because I did not expect it the first time I saw it. She is going to all the different rooms Um next thing you know like it's like it's like a long shot like you're you're really far like away from her and you're just like it's one of those scenes where you're like squinting to try to see what's in the background because it looks like something's gonna happen but you're not sure what it is and then like the moment that she shuts that door and locks it like it just barges open and it just zooms right in on the first time I saw this movie, it was so quick that I thought it was like the headless statue that was following her with shears. <laughs> it took me a couple of times watching this movie before I realized that it was just like a patient under 
under white sheet that was possessed (laughs) i was trying to figure out what the fuck she was wearing and then yeah and then i had to rewind it and watch it again i'm like oh she's just like covered in sheets yeah and then like yeah it was really good and plus they had like the 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 sound sting right where it just like hits you like the the sudden eerie Mm -hmm. thing and you're just like oh <laughs> like i remember i was like oh this isn't i remember like being like this movie isn't even that scary and then that jump scare happens i feel like it's stupid for yeah. it getting me <laughs> no yeah. that scene is so famous it's like even when fox did that exorcist series on tv they mm-hmm. did like a tribute to this scene in season two of that show <laughs> that's pretty wild um anyway i guess <clears throat> Despite the fact that you said you didn't like this, I there's enough about this that you like that I'm genuinely interested in what you're gonna say right now. So, Javi, did you like Exorcist Three? No, I didn't. <laughs> Why not? Why, why are you wrong and stupid? <laughs> not like ultimately there was just there was a lot of uh, if you're if you like procedural shit, if you like um, if you like Signs of Lambs. If you like any of the Hannibal movies, right? There are movies that, like Angel said, did the procedural cop versus criminal thing a lot better. Uh, as it, it, it was one. <laughs> There's of also movies. movies that do the procedural thing better, like Zodiac, which we or always, Zodiac. which me we may herald like at, at as maybe the best movie we ever reviewed on this show. <laughs> I mean, at least as of now, yeah, <laughs> yeah. When it's going up against the Exorcist three, yes, it's gonna win. But it's just like it's one of those weird movies where it tried to bleed two genres, and in some ways it worked, in some ways it didn't, and ultimately it was just it's it's one of those movies that suffered from uh, from studio involvement. If you would have had, if this movie would have just been called Legion, and was literally just about gemini and gemini's possessions and killings of other people it would have been a great movie like it would have been an enjoyable movie and i think my opinion would have changed but because it was forced to fit this exorcist category and they forced connections to the first movie even if they were well done or not it was the fact that they had to force an exorcist scene into this movie and just crammed it all up in there it may it just ultimately takes away from it and i'm just like it feels like neither its own thing nor an exorcist movie. So it's like, I can't really enjoy it. And it sucks because there are things I do like. I really do like, like you mentioned, the the relationship between uh, Dyer and Kinderman. I thought it was very well written. I thought those guys were very likable. And I thought Dyer was really good at offsetting how much of a miserable old bastard uh, Kinderman had become. But and, and so when dire dies it even you know it, it like you said because of the way kinderman is it totally makes you even feel dire's absence in the film even more because of that because he was offsetting this character um yeah i, I felt like uh what's his name brad duriff was freaking fantastic as gemini he was very creepy and very eerie uh it's just ultimately they're, uh, they they just picked some wrong things. If this movie would have just been called Demon Detectives, I would have been okay with it. <laughs> but no, because it's uh, it it has that stigma of being a part of the Exorcist franchise, which is weird. I mean, they're like right now. I, I know I talked about Train to Busan when we talked about hashtag Alive last week. 
But like Train to Busan is getting a kind of spiritual sequel where they were smart and they called it Train to Busan Presents Peninsula. But it's one <laughs> of those movies where you're like, okay, it's connected enough that it, I know it takes place in the same world, but it doesn't necessarily, I shouldn't expect any of the main characters from the first film to come back. Almost like the Halloween 3 argument, right? Where, yeah. where you would think that if, if they didn't call it Halloween 3, if they just called it Halloween colon season of the witch or something, you know, and they told you like from the beginning that it wasn't a Michael Myers movie and didn't try to confuse you, then maybe, you know, that then, then maybe it would have been more well received. Who knows? Yeah, and that's definitely how I feel with Exorcist Three. If it would have just had just enough to be connected with the original Exorcist, it might have been changed my experience of it, but it's like <laughs> as far as like I know we're in spooky season right now. It wasn't terribly scary. Mm-hmm. it was i think aside from in the i think the few times it is scary it does make you feel like eerie it, it, it really makes you feel like creeped out more than scared until the jump scare that jump scare is like legitimate it was very well done and it's probably one of the best i've seen in a long time <laughs> uh i definitely like this movie like i said in the beginning of the show <laughs> i guess me and De- jeffrey dahmer have that in common <laughs> God, I, I hope that's it. the only thing y'all having. <laughs> um, I think it's it really is one of my favorite horror sequels. I think it takes all the stuff I liked about Exorcist One. Well, not all of it, but it takes a good chunk of it, and it's actually able to translate it into another, you know, genre that I already like. Um, I, I understand that it's it's maybe not as good as other movies in this genre that have done much much better. But for me, for some reason, it just works. It really is one of my favorite horror sequels. I think it's a really underrated movie that gets buried under the fact that Exorcist 2 was so poor. (laughs) But I'm definitely glad that we got to go over it on this podcast. And I'm glad that we were able to do this episode for all of you guys. So I'd like to thank you guys for joining us for this episode. Uh, Please, please, please continue to interact with us on social media. we're going to be doing horror movies all the month of October. So uh, make sure that you continue to follow us as we get into our, you know, movies of this month. And there's five Fridays in uh, October. So there will be five weeks starting last week of, (laughs) of movies for the month of October. So glad we were able to provide more content for you guys. Please, please, please uh, also uh, leave us reviews on iTunes if you can. It will help raise awareness for the show and just uh, share our podcast with other people that you think might be interested. So, Yeah, we don't ask for much, you bastards. So. <laughs> <laughs> the least you can do is click that weird little purple bro- button on, bro- on uh, iTunes and help us out. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, I guess this is it for this episode. Uh, Again, uh, glad you guys are able to join us for this. Glad we got to talk about this and we'll talk to you guys next time. Yup. And as always, enjoy spooky season, y'all, because we're in the middle of October. Let's have fun, gang, gang. Woo!